Good morning, everyone. This is uh, the end of a weekend workshop entitled The Dark Night of the Spirit. And we'll be concluding that workshop and then also talking about uh, talking to people who've just come in at 10 o'clock. So, The Dark Night of the Spirit, the, the way that we approached it was looking at not knowing, looking at the times in our life that we don't know. And of course, we all encounter it. We have too many options or we have too few choices, we don't have the right ones, or we have too many people pushing us in too many ways. So in a way, the dark night is about what do we do when there is, we don't know what to do, when there is nothing to do. And we've talked about what happens when, in the course of spiritual practice, we touch that place where all of our landmarks, all of the guides that we have, have disappeared. The first thing that we do, which is relevant to all of us at all times, is to calm the frantic mind. The frantic mind is the mind that does not want to feel what is true. So we have a certain emotion or a certain feeling inside ourselves, and we become frantic to get away from it. We become frantic to get away from this feeling so that we plunge into a relationship, we use drugs or alcohol, we escape and go to Hawaii, we quit our job, whatever it is. So the very first stage, maybe even the most important stage, is to really calm the frantic mind that's trying to escape from our own direct experience. The frantic mind makes our experience all the worse, all the more difficult. The more we run from it, the more it pursues us. So the very first and always, I think, useful recommendation is to feel in the body whatever it is we need to feel. Not to feel the story, as we keep saying, not to to, to play the story about it over and over and over again, or to rehearse it or to recall it, but to feel in the body that which is most human. Because everything we feel is just human. All of our grief, all of our sorrow, all of our joy, all of the excitement, all the disappointment, and even the sense of not knowing, confusion. To bring it back to directly experiencing the body. And often that's actually just enough, just to do that. Because the future will, of course, unfold. But when it gets to the place of what do we do, how do we actually act where do we go? We have a few criteria in the tradition that we suggest. First is to look at what we're contemplating and say, will this benefit others? Or will this harm others? In a way, it's, it's the, the question of, will what I'm doing harm others? Will it create negative, difficult feelings for others? In a way, that's one of the first, most important criteria. Criterion. The criterion. Secondly, what do we love to do? But what is it that we love to do? What is our heart drawn to in this moment? So often people hear that, doing what you love to do, and they start immediately start thinking about, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? What do I want to do in 10, 15, 20 years? You know, I want to become a boat builder and build 20 boats. 
But that's not what it means. It means in this moment, where is the heart drawn towards? What's the heart drawn towards? We can't keep anything. But we can, in this moment, act. So if we can do what we love, we can do something that will be a benefit of others, we can do something that is ethical, and we can ask for help. But sooner or later, we have to go forward on faith. Sooner or later, all of the reasons, all the motivations, all the ideas, all the stratagems, sooner or later, they all run out. And we have to go forward on faith. Real faith, certainly in the Buddhist tradition, is not a doctrine. It's not that we have to have faith Faith is not some religious adherence, that we have faith in a certain set of rites and rituals, or we have faith in even someone else. Faith is not becoming narrow and small-minded and eliminating the thinking mind of other possibilities. Faith is not about becoming small and weak. It is about becoming humble, because we have to let go of a certain idea that we know. But faith is not about having faith in the Buddha or having faith in an institution or having faith in the economy or having faith in anything at all except that fundamental faith that this life that we have been given is a gift. That we have been given this gift wholly and completely and we have did nothing Nothing to get it. It was a gift, a complete gift. Just as the fact we open our eyes and see, it is no effort on our part. Our eyes automatically see. It is a gift. The eyes see, the ears hear, tongue tastes, salt and sour. It's all a gift. And the faith that we talk about in Buddhism is the faith that comes from that place where this gift arises. It's deep faith in the fact that we have been given this life. That that life itself is precious. Is a miracle. Everything and everyone every belief, all the good and evil things of this world will disappear. In an instant, they'll crumble to dust. The tsunami is a great example of that. The Twin Towers, a few hours, big pile of rubble, earthquakes, volcanoes. Anything that we have faith in that Outer sense is not reliable. So if we can't have faith in things, or even people, or ideas, because our ideas change all the time. Some, some traditions try to, try to force us to have faith in a certain idea or principle. But the idea or principle is just something that we make up in our own minds. I often think about uh, the, the idea of impermanence. We say there's nothing, everything, 
There is nothing true except impermanence. Nothing is reliable except impermanence. But if I look at my own life, my understanding of impermanence has changed dramatically over the last 40 years. And even impermanence is very changeable. It is not to be relied upon. Because it can be seen so many different ways. The core of faith in the Zen tradition is that core of creativity and attention, which is at the core of our life. As long as we're alive, whatever we turn our attention to, something is created. Even in sleep, as soon as we're aware, when we're aware in sleep, dreams are created. We turn ourselves to our body, to anything else, it's all created. When you turn attention to the world, there it is. This creative function, which we have as inherent part of our life, a gift to us, is the place that we can have faith. It's not personal. It's not having faith in my personality or your personality. It's not having faith in something, but it's faith that wherever that core is, which we can't know, always present, always there. And it has infinite possibilities. We don't know what's possible. We don't know what's going to come next. We have deep faith that if we're paying really close attention with a big open mind, something will emerge. And as we say in this tradition, if we're doing our best in this moment and our best in this moment and our best in this moment and our best in this moment, then the very best thing will happen. We're paying attention and watching things come towards us with wholehearted attention. The very best thing comes. And we don't know whether it's good or bad, whether it's going to be pleasant or unpleasant. This fundamental intention, attention, has to be paired with our deep intention. What is it we want to accomplish in this life? What is it we want to be aligned with in this life? What is it we want to go forward towards in this life? This last weekend, we spent time talking about the fundamental intention to, in the Christian terms, become one with God, to know God. In Buddhist terms, to become enlightened, to know our true nature. We talk often about vows. A vow is something that ideally is so far out, we can't even imagine that we're going to reach it. Because the vow is not about getting something. A vow is about orienting our life, orienting orienting our intention in a certain direction. And along the way of that intention, all sorts of things fall into place. The intention to become awakened, the intention to become a bodhisattva, the intention to really bring peace on this earth, the intention to save all sentient beings, the intention to eliminate hunger. Such vast, big intentions. 
such vast, big vows, will never eliminate hunger in this world in one sense. Never. It's a relative thing. You know, if you have, if you have more, then of course you have something with less. If something comes, then of course something is going to go. And yet, the vow to eliminate hunger, the vow to become a bodhisattva, the vow to reach the North Star, that vow becomes a guiding light and a guiding direction, which, in the course of following that vow, with creativity, with attention, we become whole, we become wholesome, we become a benefit to the world. This intention aligned with this innate ability to attend, this innate ability, appreciation of the creativity that we have, becomes the light in dark places, becomes that which is always available. And we may not know it with our conscious mind, we may not understand it, and yet it's always functioning. St. John of the Cross, who we were reading a little bit of this week, says that the spiritual life, by necessity, has to be developed and matured in the darkness. It has to be developed and matured in the place which is obscure because our intellectual mind is too small to really comprehend and to embrace all that's involved, all the profound changes. When we have a deep intention and we have attention and we are wholeheartedly attending to this moment creatively, then underneath the surface, in that obscure place in our heart, things are moving. Things are opening up. Something is coming into being. Something which we will not even know what it is until we look back and see. Oh, looking back years ago or months ago, oh, now I see. This thing had come forward and I didn't even know it. It was so deep in me, so much a part of me. And then at some time we'll have a little epiphany and say, oh, look at that. But the epiphanies always happen after the change. The light in dark places is not us personally. It's not our thoughts. It's not our feelings. And yet it all comes from us. And then we do just what we know, deeply know we need to do. And we do it in the only time it can be done, which is right now. And the reason that I suddenly had the inspiration to change the service this morning, aside from giving Yuko a thrill, um, was uh, because when we're one of the elements of this practice, one of the elements of this change, one of the elements of this notebook, is that when we see something, when we have finally understood something, we think, as the chant goes, when the truth does not fill our body and mind, we think that we have enough. When the truth fills our body and mind, we realize something is missing. When we have a feeling that we've got it all under control, we feel like we've got the, we've got the truth finally, 
when we finally feel like we've understood the whole thing and got it in line the way we'd like it to be, the truth does not fill our body and mind, even though we may feel that this is true, this is right, this is whole, this is complete. A perfect example of that is when people fall in love. They fall in love and they feel like, okay, that relationship is whole and complete. That's all there is. There's just this, this place that we're in love with. It's true, of course, in one sense. But it's also true that in that coming together, the truth does not fill us. We may think that we have enough, but there's a bigger wisdom, a bigger truth, a bigger container. And as we become wider and wider, we realize there's always so much more to see, so much more to love, so much more wisdom, so much more. And the example that Dogen gives is that when we're out in the ocean on a boat, and we're looking around, we think we see everything. But imagine we're out in the, in the ocean, those of you who've been out in the ocean or someplace, and you look around, all you see is ocean everywhere. And we don't, we don't realize, we, we kind of forget, oh yeah, this is just a little tiny little drop in this vast sea of change. And I like the way he puts it. He says, however, the ocean is neither round nor square, and its realities are infinite in variety. It's like a palace. It's like a jewel. When people come together in a relationship, you know, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But it's only a little small looking. And as the truth begins to fill our mind, we realize, oh, there's so many more varieties, so many more sides, so many more aspects. that This whole world is like a palace, like a jewel. The 10,000 dharmas are like this. There's always more that we can't see. There's always more that we can't understand. So even when we're talking about this deep faith, we're not talking about faith that's in what we understand because our understanding is always so limited. We're talking about faith in that which comes forward always creatively, always bringing forth things that we don't, don't know. Because what we can see, we only see with the human eye. And the human eye only sees things from the human perspective. And our faith has to be bigger than the human eye, the human perspective. So my deep hope for everyone is that you have deep faith. Deep faith in this life. And deep faith that whatever life brings us, good or bad, that by staying with it, by experiencing it fully, something will open up. It's like a palace, it's like a jewel. The jewel will open up. Have deep faith in that. Have deep faith and deep confidence. And of course, if we're in a dark night, nothing else will sustain us. That's all we have left. When we die, we can't take anything with us except that. Thank you.